Namaste and welcome. At the Hindu Parenting Podcast, we discuss many issues of relevance to our identity as Hindus. We all understand individual identity, but the sense of identity does not stop at the individual level. Groups of people have a collective identity which is just as important to a growing child's self-esteem as his individual identity. A strong and coherent collective identity leads to confidence. What is the state of collective Hindu identity today? How does it affect generations of parents and children? To help us understand group identity, we have an internationally renowned clinical psychologist and professor, Dr. Rajat Mitra, who has generously agreed to share his important insights with us today. Dr. Rajat Mitra has worked with many different groups of people across the world and is the author of the well-acclaimed book, The Infidel Next Door. Namaste Rajat ji. Thank you for coming here to talk with us today. Namaste. It is my honor to be here on this podcast and uh, to share. The pleasure is entirely ours, Rajat ji. Many of us are all too familiar with the silence we encounter when we try to explore our past, our, um, our history, our identity as Hindus. In, in fact, I've seen that many Hindus switch off when they hear the word Hindu itself. In your experience as a psychologist, why does this happen? And uh, what explains the silence and the lack of interest in Hindu issues? It's a very uh, relevant question. And before I explain uh, about why there is silence, maybe I'll just take a few um, minutes uh, to explain the fact about uh, how we Hindus built a narrative that was unequaled. So as we know from neurosciences is that one of the highest powers of the brain is to build narrative. And uh, our ancestors thousands of years ago built a narrative, you know, from their experiences, from their stories, from observation about human condition. And uh, in this, they brought down some of the deepest philosophical ideas about mental health, about uh, how our brain behaves, how society, uh, you know, needs to grow. So... If we take uh, a wide variety, for example, uh, of the works that we have had, Gita, or even the Gurukul Shishya, you know, Parampara, and how it all integrates memory, knowledge, and feeling, you know, in a way that is unequaled in any other part of the world. Vedas, Mahabharat, Panchatantra, Upanishads, they all start with a fundamental question. It is. It doesn't start with commandments. Like if you see other faiths, they start with commandments, 10 commandments or this commandments. Our faith starts with questioning and the answer to a question. And in a tradition of, uh, you know, both uh, Smriti and Shruti, you know, the parents down the ages, they have been telling their children through the form of Shruti that, uh, you know, how we need to conduct ourselves, how we need to go ahead. And the resultant of that is that the Hindu brain, I would say, and I'm using the specific word Hindu brain, Hindu intelligence has grown up to be unique. It is not only that of a survivor, but it is also something that can excel and, you know, show itself in the highest forms. For example, if you see the recent film Oppenheimer, 
he talks about how Gita influenced him and how he did that. Most of the major, uh, many of the major top physicists, they use that. So we could develop the highest power, we could develop our brain to the highest power to build a narrative and what our ancestors built was, uh, you know, continuing till the time the invasions happened uh, and uh, colonialism happened. The the utmost try of our invaders and colonialists was to destroy this narrative. They were not only, you know, uh, uh, stupefied by it, but wondered at our everything, the architectural marvels, the libraries, the books that we have had. So they felt that if until and unless we destroy all this, we will not be able to go ahead and rule over these people. And we had turned too much inwards in order to be aware of that. Now, what happened as a result of all that trauma is that the Hindus, they fell into silence. And as I uh, say again and again, that the language of trauma is silence. So, for example, pictureize our ancestors hundreds of years back, seeing hundreds and thousands of temples destroyed across the country, libraries being burnt down, assaults and, uh, you know, slaughters taking place. Generation after generation recorded that. It is unequaled in history in any other way. Even Will Durant, the most famous uh, historian of the 20th century, said that the invasion of India and the barbarism that was shown is unequaled in the history of mankind. Now, all that produced a profound effect upon us, and uh, we began to carry that in silence. That silence has broken now in the last 10, 15 years, and, you know, fault lines have appeared to show that uh, we lost touch with our roots, and uh, we could not, uh, you know, we, we need to connect with it once again. This is a civilizational quest for all Hindus and all Hindu parents need to recognize that and teach it, uh, you know, to uh, their children. I mean, the individuality that was very characteristic and the collective that was very characteristic of a Hindu went down. For example, if you see in most of North India, till very recently, festivals were not celebrated in a collective way. People did pujas inside at home. Like, for example, now you see hundreds of thousands of people going out in Navrata. It wasn't there some till some time back, right? If you see our processions, they uh, got there was so much of stone throwing and destruction of them, which still continues because of which we almost stopped taking out processions. And even now we are very scared of taking out processions because only Hindu processions in India, they get stoned and attacked. So all this produced a tremendous amount of trauma and we began to withdraw. We began to remove ourselves psychologically from people, from society, from public places, and withdrew to the safety of our home. In trauma, the most important aspect is that the sense of safety that governs us is gone. And for the Hindus, that sense of safety is something that we lost centuries ago and something which we are trying to retrieve and build once again. And that is something which is only possible if Hindu parents right now teach about trauma and what we went through to their children, and the children are able to understand that and rise above it. There is no other way apart from that. So um, 
Another way, for example, you know, when the group identity broke up is that Hindus became competitive with each other. You know, we, for example, there are a lot of sayings about, you know, Hindus, Hindus' biggest enemy. We uh, go ahead and uh, don't, uh, you know, try to encourage or help or uh, support each other. We do all that. It is, you know, that competitiveness has been seen in slave societies, in societies that have been persecuted. And uh, we need to understand that, that that sense of cooperation and group work is something that is yet to come, which is a characteristic of many, you know, societies that follow Abrahamic faith. They did not undergo persecution like us that we have gone through for centuries. So I hope I have answered your question to some extent. Yeah, I mean, uh, this this has given so many insights so i see we uh, in a way we've had two waves of colonization one is the islamic and then we had the british and i think the methods yeah. of each were quite different in terms yes, of subjugating right yeah uh, the british the the uh, the islamic way destroyed our they tried to destroy our warriors the british tried to destroy us intellectually the Brahmins, the groups which carried the intellectual wisdom of the uh, centuries and thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah. So that's very important. So two important arms of uh, the Hindu faith were actually destroyed uh, between yeah. these two waves of colonization. Right. Yeah. Right, so uh, right. you, you said you talked about uh, Hindu festivals being uh, celebrated within homes. You know, when you were saying that, it occurred to me that it is true that uh, there are there are no real big temples in the north, like you see, uh, starting from Orissa downwards. You know, so the yes, typical right. mandir structure, the kind of it's a typical temple architecture, yeah. which is no more uh, seen in any of the northern temples, and uh, also the other part that you said about not collectively. Uh, celebrating one of the things that uh, uh, any temple from orissa onwards to the south uh, they have these temple uh, rathayatras right that uh, you know yes. they carry the deity on the thing but we haven't heard something like that for any temple deity in the north is uh, is that exactly. true and is and is that one of the manifestations of this uh, factor that you said you know that people started to celebrate within their homes sure. rather than collective uh, very, very true. Uh, like we had a temple uh, uh, manual called Shilpa Shastra by which temples were made. Now you will not find any temples built with Shilpa Shastra in Delhi. And the oldest uh, temple that you have is Birla Temple built in 1939. And if you look for records, for 1000 years, you will not find any temple. So why is it that we had a Shilpa Shastra, which was so well developed, which is shown in other parts of the country, but say not like Delhi, which was a, you know, completely Hindu city till 11th century. And after that stopped being a Hindu city. It was because all temples were destroyed. No new temples were allowed to come up. And the spire of the temple should not be seen beyond 200 meters. There was a edict that was, uh, you know, built in the, by one of the emperors. And most important, the fear, the trauma stayed in the mind of Hindus that they could not build. It was only changed in 1939 when freedom struggle was at its peak. People were fighting. There was a nationalistic fervor and spirit amongst the people. And that's the time when Birla Temple came up. 
Otherwise, if you see, there are medieval temples in Delhi, churches in Delhi, which belong to the medieval period, but no large temple using Shilpa Shastra. So that's an example of transgenerational trauma as to how Hindus lived in fear and survival for all these centuries. So that's uh, one reason why you will find that in Orissa, in south of India, where probably it was not so much there, but in northern India, like in Kashmir, for example, all the festivals are, Hindu festivals are celebrated indoors. People withdraw during the festivals in a very uh, proactive way to preserve themselves. Yeah. It's quite painful to hear this actually, you know. It yes. is. And, and and probably we are dealing with our own pain when we hear you saying this. <laughs> sure. Unrecognized actually. Very true. And that pain remains inside us. You know, that pain is what we call transgenerational trauma. It has remained. And it is something that is passed on from generation to generation. And that pain is a silent one that is finding an expression right now through a Hindu resurgence and finding of identity. So you've used a very um, powerful and interesting word here, transgenerational trauma. Yes. So... Does that mean we can pass this on to our children for many generations without us being aware of it? Is that possible? Yes, exactly. Because the body records it. You know, trauma is passed on in silence. And uh, it, uh, you know, it passed on in silence because the brain goes into a survival mode. And when it goes into a survival mode, it doesn't feel like discussing it. So, for example, if you take the major genocides of the 20th century, let's take the Albanian genocide, uh, sorry, the Armenian genocide, which happened in 1917, people, the third or fourth generations after that, they started raising it. Why didn't they raise it for almost 60, 70 years? Because they were busy with survival, because the brain had gone into a survival mode. So the parent's brain grows into a survival mode. The parents teach survival to the children. Their children teach survival to their next generation. It continues till a point comes when the generation starts feeling safe again, starts connecting to their roots, to their history, and they're no longer in the survival mode. So the whole thing starts uh, happening again, that they look for their roots. If you see the Holocaust, there was uh, two, three generations later, Holocaust films, literature started, uh, you know, coming up. If you see closer home, the trauma of Kashmiri Pandits, they ran away in 1989 and 90. They were thrown out of Kashmir, but they started in an active way speaking about it after at least one or two generations later. It takes that kind of time to retrieve and find safety again in order to speak about it. So transgenerational trauma is something that, you know, we know is passed on from generation to generation till one generation decides that, okay, I need to find closure. I will not pass it on anymore. And uh, it is something that uh, probably important for our generation so that we have the responsibility of finding closure for it so that our children don't go through that. So uh, right now we have a public discourse that uh, rewards actually, you know, denying Hindu identity. Uh, kids yeah. are being pushed towards taking pride in disowning everything like uh, uh, maybe Hindu markers, uh, maybe association with any rituals or traditions, 
all this is looked down upon it's looked as regressive at, as as uh, backward and at the same time there is uh, quite a lot of silence uh, from families from within the families about this uh, phenomenon you know uh, what kind of effect does this have on a hindu child uh i think uh, you know i i would say that uh, the word hindu began to be associated uh, with shame and humiliation and this was as a result of uh, colonial subjugation and trauma feeling inferior so uh, it is something that uh, there was no efforts made at the time of independence for hindu resurgence for retrieving our cultural and historical heritage that is something that we had lost uh, the uh, the rulers after independence were neither aware of it nor did they bother i mean they thought of themselves as uh, you know englishmen in mind uh, uh and uh, only a brown skin by accident so that is something that continued and uh, there was no effort at hindu resurgence the nationalist leaders like patel or subhash chandra bose they never came to power or that nationalistic philosophy was never allowed to take roots so when it has now started taking roots therefore uh, things are changing right now in the country and uh, the rise of social media where hindus are able to talk about uh, what went on with them so therefore they are able to you know come to uh, they are able to discuss the shame the humiliation that was something that was transcribed in their dna and it is something that uh, you know they are begin to overcome that that is what uh, i you know feeling that is taking place in our society right so uh, i mean in fact sometimes i am asked to that uh, you are a clinical psychologist why are you talking about hindu shame and uh, humiliation it is because i see that as a distinct clinical characteristics i mean being hindu means shame and humiliation so many people talk like that uh, i mean i am part of a you know there are some groups which i am on with they are of uh, uh, hindu american parents whose children they lost to conversion they were brainwashed there are many parents who say that our children face humiliation at school whether it was over the deity kal uh, makali or durga or others fun is made of the you know deities very often uh, children they keep it to themselves they don't talk about that and uh, when they are made fun of by their friends like for example you know you have a deity uh, who holds you know for whom blood is coming out from her hands or you know her tongue is coming out or she has got all these hands she stands like this i mean children it's important to know they feel ashamed when they are made fun of mocked at in schools like that there are parents countless parents who have uh, asked me for therapy for counseling as to how to you know prevent their children from getting into that there are many parents who have told me in private that their biggest fear is that their children will convert in one or two generations and asked me how do i go ahead and stop that i was in new jersey sometime back and there was at this temple and uh, there was this group of parents who were sitting there they had brought their children so we started talking i had also gone to visit there and they said we have brought because on the weekends we literally force them 
to you know hear hindu shlokas and uh, mantras and we feel that by doing that we can stop them from converting you know because they see other religions as superior there are many parents like that it is still something which is couched in silence so if many if some parents say that look my children don't talk like that or i haven't come across that it is uh, something that a they are not aware of they're in denial and it's important to know that just because it is not happening with you today it doesn't mean it is not happening with other people many other people are going through that and this is a competitive aspect of the hindus for example a christian or the muslim who hears about christian or muslim persecution across the world immediately believes it you know for example if you hear that a single christian has been persecuted whether real or imaginary in india immediately uh, you know organizations across in the white world in the western world they start speaking muslims start speaking we hindus do not trust or believe in the persecution of other hindus that's a very competitive nature that hindus developed with each other as a result of colonialism and trauma it is something that we need to understand it's a well known psychological phenomena that uh under slavery you turn competitive with each other because resources are very limited you have to fight for it to get the best for yourself you are not you don't have to do that if you are a colonialist or if you are a master so therefore we hindus develop that deep competitive fighting with each other you know even leading to things like hindu hindu ka sabse bada dushman hota hai ek hindu dusre ke sath kaise kar sakta hai we need to understand that we developed it as a result of colonialism it does yeah. put a lot of perspective to what's happening just to take your point further you you talked about parents sending their uh, children uh, over the weekends to maybe bhagavad gita classes or uh, shloka yeah. chanting and things like that uh, i think we have seen that that is absolutely no guarantee that the child will no. not convert you know so no not at all in fact is... uh, in fact i think i forgot to tell the rest of the story because i asked the children that how do you find it and hmm. they uh, they were all they said boring stupid wow. and uh, we are only here because our parents are telling us to do so so uh, then i sat with them and i talked about uh, you know the hinduism the hindu warriors who defended hinduism they listened with rapt attention you know i talked of the struggle of hinduism their parents Uh, how they preserved hinduism and they said we never knew that i said yes you belong to that race you belong to those people who gave their lives who fought to preserve one of the highest levels of knowledge and i use terms from uh, neuropsychology from biology from uh, you know sociology to explain that you know they were teenagers grown up children who understood those terms and they said okay we never saw hinduism or we ne- never saw it in you know that way why can't our parents teach us uh, that in that way i said it's very important go and tell your parents that they need to instead of forcing you to come which makes you more angry with your religion with your faith you need to understand the true nature of your faith who are your ancestors that you know uh, who should be proud of right they were good ancestors they knew that they faced one of the biggest threats uh, that anyone can face the destruction of their culture their civilization they passed it on to through shruti they passed it on for you for there is a legacy that you carry 
So the children were absolutely, you know, uh, you know, taken up with that and said that, okay, we never knew. Now we can even go ahead and confront our friends if any one of them makes fun of it. So that kind of, uh, you know, uh, parenting is very necessary for Hindu parents today to give that kind of uh, a knowledge uh, and, uh, you know, information so that children know that what legacy they carry. We are not, we are leaving a big vacuum in that area, whether in India or whether in USA, it is still, it is Hindu parenting is something extremely important right now for us to, you know, save our civilization. That is one of the primary reasons we started this podcast, you know. Yeah, yeah this is, uh, you know, totally a phenomenal perspective, absolutely necessary for Hindu parents to hear because most of us are caught in this uh, endless cycles of teaching them samskar, teaching them this and that. But really, so, that doesn't go a long way at all. I mean, we have to address the root of the emotion of shame and guilt you feel deep inside that we are not talking about. Sure. So sure. when, yeah. Like so when, a similar example is how the, you know, for example, the Jews, they were deeply fragmented at the end of Second World War after the Holocaust. And uh, they taught, uh, you know, they became a collective nation by, uh, they became a collective and a very strong collective by teaching it to their children as to why, you know, their ancestors, they fought for survival. So there is a deep sense of pride they instilled in their children. The same today is, you know, being done by many other societies, Native American societies, uh, uh, if you see the Blacks, they talk in terms of their resilience, their strength to withstand the worst uh, of that slavery could do. And that's where they're discovering, you know, their strengths. And we Hindus, uh, the Hindu parents need to do the same to show that, I mean, sanskars, teaching principles are extremely necessary. Nobody is denying that. But along that, Alongside that, you also need to teach your history, the history of the last 1,000 years, how we overcame that, right? That is very important. Otherwise, it becomes so dissociated and disconnected that children are not able to connect to that. Absolutely. And when we listen to you, it feels so liberating even for, for us. So we can imagine what kind of an effect this perspective will have on the future generations of children to know that... Yeah. Paul, this is a common phenomenon across the world and we are not the only ones facing it so that we don't feel, exactly. you know, guilt over the shame or shame over the guilt. These two are oh. so tightly woven for us. Uh, sometimes oh. we just get frustrated not knowing how to handle these emotions and everything starts at the emotional level, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, neuroscience, that's what it teaches us that emotions organize the brain that it is and the emotions like guilt and you know humiliation which has been of our history which our ancestors faced and dealt with it powerfully they contain a lot of energy the you know this energy is called sublimation that how you can convert this into a very powerful emotion that can bind us together so it is not a destructive thing. It's a very constructive thing. It's like, you know, when we face it, we confront it, we bring it out into the open. That's what gestural therapy talks about. 
and it can be done through parenting, we become a powerful family. We become a powerful nation in the process. I mean, if you see, I mean, I'm a professor. I'll give you an example. When I talk, I teach trauma, post-traumatic stress. Whenever I talk about trauma, you know, uh, sometimes the... Uh, the Kashmiri Muslim in my class gets up and says, this is the trauma I face. There are sometimes Christian students who get up that say, this is the trauma I faced. A Hindu student never gets up and trauma. So once I caught hold of a Hindu student and I said, your family ran away from Kashmir. You lost members. You have told me that. So why didn't you get up in the class and say, this is something I have gone through? He says, my family has told me to remain silent and not talk about it. Right. So this is a message that Hindu parents should not give. They should not say, be silent. They should say that, yes, speak up in appropriate form forums. Let us discuss it amongst ourselves so that we are not ashamed of talking about it. We own it. We take responsibility for it. And it's only through that that we can change and, you know, uh, kind of retrieve the glory of our civilization that's lost. I think this also happens because there's some kind of a feeling that talking about trauma is for weaklings, that it will make our children weak, demotivated, or scared and worried. So it, it seems to be running in cycles. And the other point is many parents also have reacted um, like, what kind of a problem do you see? I don't see any problem. My children are fine. We are earning well. We've done well for ourselves. Nobody is persecuting us. What are you talking about? So, you know, the, the reactions range from either this extreme or that extreme. So this yeah. is something that we need to start talking about a lot among ourselves first, isn't it? Sure, very true. Like, for example, when in the Second World War and when Jews were being persecuted, there were Jews in USA who said, but nothing is happening to us. Why should we worry about other people? Or is it really happening? It's not something very minor. So it's important to know that whenever uh, trauma is, uh, you know, there, it is always minimized. You don't see it till it kind of manifests itself and does it totally. Like if you take the Second World War, a uh, lot of people in Europe did not see it coming. A lot of people didn't even believe that it would happen, right? That, you know, Hitler would go ahead and attack. So there is an attempt uh, by people to minimize it till it becomes too big. So the parents who are doing that, they are like parents in the well. And as I said it earlier, that, you know, because of long periods of slavery, we became competitive. We only learned to see what is uh, in front of us, not to care or compassion or show empathy for others. Like if there is a single, you know, person of Abrahamic faith ever who's persecuted in India, immediately all around the world, the organizations speak up, right? Because the collective is so strong. But that is not the same thing for Hindu, right? So, and there are many Hindu parents who say that, oh, this is not happening to me. Of course, it is not happening to you, but it is happening to other people. Have compassion, have understand, have empathy, right? See why it is happening. It can happen to you tomorrow. What will you do then? Who will you go for help if this happens? So they don't have this, uh, you know, uh, uh, wide uh, sightedness in order to see that it can also happen to me. And that is, again, a result of centuries of colonialism and trauma that we have undergone, right? Mm -hmm. So, and talking about trauma does not uh, lead to being, a you know, a weakling, right? But, uh, you know, societies or groups which have talked about it, taken ownership of it, 
I mean, let's look at the Jews. They talk about their trauma. Has it made them weak? They have one of the best, uh, you know, intellectual systems in the world. The largest number of Nobel laureates. If you see their country well developed, most scientific achievements, most uh, things in the journal, and side by side also they own up the trauma, the persecution that they have gone through. So owning up gives you a new strength, a new resilience that doesn't come from suppressing it and denying it. Let us understand that. This is a very a basic psychological paradigm. This is a very basic psychological principle that owning up, talking about it has never made you a weakling, right? It is not something that you caused it. It is something that your parents went through and they survived it and left it for you. So it is okay. Just because we were colonized doesn't make us weak today, but it tells us that, okay, why is it that we are colonized? We trusted people too much. We went inwards too much. And that is something that we need to change. It makes us stronger right now to distance ourselves from the mistakes we made in the past. If we repress it, don't talk about it. We keep on repeating it ad infinitum. You uh, worked with uh, genocide and trauma victims probably sure. from across the world. So uh, what's the closest example to the Hindu situation today? Um, have you seen this silence yes. of trauma with uh, any other group of people? Uh, can you elaborate? I Sure. I have seen silence everywhere. I have seen it with uh, Jews. I have seen it with Native Americans, with Blacks. And I've also seen that silence breaking up. Like if you see, for example, the point of no return in Africa, where the Blacks were transported to USA, I have seen their people getting up, sitting on the floor and, you know, breaking up into tears, crying and waking up with a new sense of energy, right? I have seen Native Americans claiming that, okay, this is where our ancestors were traumatized. They were buried alive. You know, if you see, uh, uh, if you... If you've read about bury me at the wounded knee and they refuse the dakota pipeline to pass through that area because it would disturb the memory of their ancestors right the same is for thousands of hindu temples the same is for the ram Janmabhoomi place where babri masjid was destroyed it's a sacred space and i think that you know when hindus gather there they're claiming their sacred space saying that it was destroyed please understand it's a similar situation uh, it, it has many similarities, except that I think the degree to which the Hindus went through, I do not find any other group, uh, you know, having gone through that. Native Americans were killed in millions, you know, by in centuries by the whites who, you know, went over there, right? Mm -hmm. The same for Hindus, but for Hindus, it started much earlier, repeatedly, and their though you know the civilization that they had built up was completely destroyed so it differs in degree but there are deep similarities that you see about the way the whites and invaders have you know carried out uh, destruction to other civilizations yeah i think ours is really as we said it is about thousand years two waves of colonization uh i think the americas yeah. came into being or the uh, the northern America part has come into being only for the past 500 years. So yeah. of which probably one or two centuries they must have, uh, or probably three centuries yeah. they would have taken to annihilate the indigenous people. And uh, slavery also lasting around that time. So yeah, as you said, our time period is uh, much longer, but 
<laughs> but yeah. no one knows this you know it's only now that we True. even talk about it and talk about a thousand True. years of practically slavery we can say right though we were not yeah. in chains like the blacks but our minds are everything was chained in many ways isn't it sure i think the the blacks were made into slaves uh, you know who did physical labor and yeah. when the british uh, they did not need to make us into slave i mean they didn't need to chain us. They yeah. they chained us. They realized that you know these people can be chained perhaps through intellectual subversion, deception, and control. So that is uh, you know what uh, you know they did for us. Yeah, I think the first wave had sufficiently softened us up, uh, you know, uh, physically that uh, we were emaciated through some five hundred, six hundred years of constant genocide. You know, actual wiping us out so i think we were sufficiently sure. uh, you know emaciated bodily and then it was the turn of the next wave to colonize us yeah. intellectually right that that and is you know what, what? nobody wants to talk about genocide like if you see the history of genocide the very definition ran into difficulties at the end of second world war because yeah. uh, you know america wanted to hide its genocide of native americans Mm -hmm. Russia, they wanted to hide, you know, uh, their, uh, you know, genocide. Britain and France, its history of colonialism, and they all wanted to hide. So therefore, it's not easy to talk about genocide. So if we talk about, say, for example, Hindu genocide and its attempt to destroy uh, the attempts of the invaders and the whites to destroy our civilization, it is not easy talk for them. Britain doesn't acknowledge it still, right? So therefore, we have to take up, we have to speak about it. And only when we do it at the mass scale, I mean, it is. Not, it should not be left to a few uh, intellectuals or uh, activists. It is something that every parent must teach that to the children, you know, for the future generations. That is the responsibility that every Hindu parent has to teach uh, their history of uh, resilience and how their ancestors overcame trauma. And so today we become good ancestors for the future generations. So we find a closure for what we have gone through convert, stop the cycle that is going on and convert it into a powerful energy that the way we are doing it right now. I mean, uh, if you see Hindus, Indians are in actually right now the top positions all over the world. We are, is... you know, doing things uh, like no other. I mean, it's incredible that, uh, you know, for example, whether it's Microsoft or NASA or the medical system in the white nations that the Hindus run today, or uh, the discoveries or inventions that we are capable of making. And that comes from the narrative building that our ancestors uh, did through, you know, writing the Vedas, the Upanishads, uh, all uh, the texts like Mahabharata and, uh, you know, Ramayan. We, we built the highest narratives that anyone else could ever do. And I think that that is, that is the way we need to teach our children individually in family homes having family dinners. That is how we can pass on the spirit, uh, you know, for the children to feel proud that it is great to be a Hindu and I don't want to be anything else. Right. So I, I think this also answers the next question that I had. Uh, what will happen if we do not talk about it? You know, because yeah. many parents might not yet see the value in discussing all this with their children. It's like opening up of a raw wound. Um, yeah. So if I we understand. just look at better, what will happen yeah. and 
why is it important to acknowledge this? That is a message that needs to go across. Uh, the if we don't do it now, we will not find closure. We will pass it on to the next generation and to the next generation till it erupts again, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, it is the responsibility of this generation to go ahead and start the process that was undone. Like, let's take it, the Gurukuls were stopped in India. The mm -hmm. indigenous form of education was stopped by the missionaries. They have brought incalculable damage you know, to the country by fostering uh, alien religion and alien culture, uh, alien civilization, and put that as uh, superior to the local culture, uh, the local civilization that existed. Right. So uh, until and unless we reverse this process in this generation, we will leave it to the future generations to reverse it. But it will happen because it cannot be suppressed indefinitely. But in this generation, if we do it, we will find the joy, the satisfaction of seeing the change that takes place and permanently erases, changes the trauma that has held us, bound us for all these centuries. So that is the joy that we will have if we change it right now in front of us. I mean, how much joy we feel, for example, fighting for you know uh, what has been denied to us. I mean, how much joy, freedom, or uh, you know, breaking loose the shackles that uh, you know bind us gives us that. So I think let us not deny the, our uh, children, our grandchildren, that joy that can come if we take that step right now today. So that is what I would like to say. Yeah. Wonderful. So actually, I wanted to. Uh... Um, ask you, have we as a collective tried to address this at different points? For example, if you see probably uh, Shivaji Maharaj's reign or maybe, yeah. you know, uh, uh, the the Ganpati movement uh, in during the time of the freedom struggle, you know, where Ganpati oh. uh, festival celebration was made as a public spectacle you know and uh, yeah. uh, people were asked so would you consider these or maybe Shivaji oh, Maharaj's yeah. Hind, uh, the, the whole you know um, he had almost the entire subcontinent under him at one time or his his uh, uh, lineage so would you consider uh, these as attempts oh, yes. by us to uh, overcome this trauma absolutely I think uh, there is no equal to Shivaji Maharaj what he did and his struggle or uh, the Ganapati festival, there have been numerous attempts that we have done. Only thing is that we have not been able to maintain it. So we started this. We did show that what we are capable of and you know what is our heritage, but we could not maintain it. Today, when we do that, when we reverse that process, it's also equally important for us that not only we do this, but also we are able to maintain that. So I would definitely consider these two the probably the biggest attempts on our part to retrieve our heritage, our civilization. And uh, now the important thing is to take our lessons from that and think of maintaining it. Yeah, so this is a very important lesson no, that uh, we cannot rest on laurels. We may, we may no. uh, gain some victories, but to sustain it, we always have to keep in mind that 
we have been victims of such a long uh, period of uh, yeah. suppression you know so yeah. it is for us and i think we were not uh, articulated like this earlier so now since we have yeah. the terminology and uh, you know the words to describe what we went through i think we should keep in mind that we should never allow this to yeah. happen to us one more time right exactly and i think victim research shows uh, that victims uh, very often over trust they become complacent and mm. the fact is that you know uh, one of the things that uh, the for example we can learn from say the jews is that the jewish people is that uh, that uh, when yes they understood that they have gone through victimization and when they reverse the victimization they have to maintain it every day there is no loosening that so you mm. develop the institutions you develop the methodology by which you never go through something like that again. Now, they, they did that after they went through Holocaust and realized that the world did not come to their help. And we also need to understand the world doesn't care for us. The world doesn't care for Hindus. We need to care for ourselves. We need to build for ourselves the institutions that will maintain the thing for us for generations. So developing those institutions is crucial. And uh, the overtrust or, uh, you know, the competitiveness that we show right now, it will go away once we understand the need and the necessity uh, that why institutions are necessary. Like one of the ways the Jewish people have done that is by building numerous museums. They have mm. built uh, numerous, uh, uh, you know, uh, they've written numerous books, numerous films, which show what they have gone through. And they continue doing that even 75 years, 80 years after what they went through, they are doing it and they will continue to do it for the next 100, 200, 300 years. It's a living reality for them. They stop at a certain time in the year in order to pay homage to their ancestors who died. They keep that alive. So keeping that alive on a regular, uh, almost a daily basis is what I consider important. In fact, uh, you know, sometimes, I mean, in, when I was talking about the Birla Temple, I think mm -hmm. uh, that, for example, when the Birla Temple is, uh, you know, there, outside that there is no board saying that this temple was actually built after a gap of almost thousand years. When I spoke to a few people, they said, uh, no, let us not do that. You know, it'll hurt a lot of people. We need to get over that mentality that it'll hurt a lot of people. Let it be. They need yeah. to understand that, you know, we should stop getting into that, that, you know, we will hurt other people. That scare must go. When we mm -hmm. are building the Ram Temple, we need to write the struggle that people went through that. If there are guides which are taking people around that, they should not only talk about the uh, that it was uh, the birthplace of uh, you know Bhagwan Ram, but also the struggle that went in the last five hundred years. Our children, our grandchildren must know the struggle. They must know that what people sacrificed in order to make it possible. The same for Kashi Vishwanath. The same for every uh, you know other temple in India. Hindu children must understand that how temples were destroyed and how it is important that they were places of culture, of civilization. They were not just places where you folded their hands in front of a deity. They were educational, cultural, uh, spiritual, religious, sports centers. Our civilization grew around temples. So we, the children need to be you know, told, the children need to be explained that why it can only grow around temples, you know, 
once again. A temple is not just a place where you go and fold your hands and take some prashad and come back. It's a spiritual, it's a altogether overall center for uh, entire, uh, you know, human growth and development, like no other, you know, uh, probably institution, you know, has done that in human history. So that is the way Hindu parents need to take their children to the temples and also explain to them at home about uh, our culture and civilization. Yeah. Uh, to go back to your point about Shivaji Maharaj, I was just Andrew. thinking, the sad part is that most Hindu children don't even know that now. Uh, that brings yeah. up the point about history taught to our children in textbooks, which is yeah. so different from what he or she learns uh, from the memory of elders in the family and from things that are yeah. simply not spoken about. You know, the silence is actually speaking here. So yeah. isn't this creating a big dissonance, confusion for all of us? Uh Yes, in a way. But, you know, I mean, the battle between history and memory is perpetual. And particularly for societies that have undergone persecution, memory is a more powerful uh, determinant of the continuation of the society than history. As we know that history is written by victors. History is written by people who over uh, who rule us. So memory is our only refuge. And we trust memory more than we trust history. So, uh, you know, I mean, history has been manipulated. History can be, uh, you know, distorted and passed on in a highly deformed way. But memory cannot be. You know, memory remains uh, something rooted in our experience and in a generational form. So, for example, a father telling the memory of what they had gone through, the family secrets, the family history, has a certain element of truth, a certain element of wisdom in it that history can never have. So the battle between history and memory is permanent. And right now, it's memory that's winning over history in India. And I think that parents need to also teach that to their children as to how memory is winning. We were the history that we were talk, taught in textbooks has not been able to take deep roots within us so much so that it could brainwash us permanently. The memory that is coming up, the memory of our persecution, the memory of our resilience and what we achieved is overtaking history. It's a beautiful moment in history to which, uh, you know, at a point of time, which we are all witness to. And I think that parents need to take pride in that and tell that to their children that we exist at such a beautiful moment uh, at a you know point of time right now. So they need to explain this, uh, uh, you know, battle between history and memory as something perpetual in which memory always wins. History can never replace memory. Uh, but it's also important to act before the memories go away permanently, isn't it? I mean, I, yeah. I... the memory doesn't go. I mean, memory doesn't really get erased or goes away. I mean, if you see the memory of things from thousands of years back still remains with us. You know, it remains in one form of another because mm -hmm. uh, it is. I mean, it is not something that can be distorted and changed, uh, you know, like the way history can be distorted and changed. History has a motive. Memory doesn't. Memory is something that, uh, you know, and that's where it's a battle between perhaps truth and falsehood. So if I tell what happened to my family when we went through a trauma, uh, it is something that uh, I'm doing it with no ulterior purpose or motive in my mind. 
But when I write history, there is an ulterior purpose or motive, except for, I think, you know, when genuine historians do who are subdued, like in our country, you know, uh, you know, Jodunath Sharkar or other who are genuine historians, you know, their, you know, version was brought down. But memory is something that is done, is spoken by people who are persecuted. Memory is done by, for example, blacks have a memory, whites have a history. So, uh, and the all-powerful history of the whites, whether it is Columbus discovered America or there was hardly any persecution of blacks, right, was not, has not been able to, you know, um, suppress or erase what happened to black for 200 years, right? So uh, it is something that, you know, emerges its head again and again, and uh, it will continue to do so. It cannot be erased. Fascinating. This this last point has been extremely fascinating. You know the the, yes. the perpetual fight between memory and history. This is one that I've not heard before. So it's uh, really deeply satisfying to hear this. That uh, you know whatever may happen, memories will not fade away, and uh, there is sure. a chance for renewal every time. So yeah. I think this memory been, wins. Yeah. So this has been an absolutely. Uh, you know, enriching and uh, actually in many places, very overwhelming conversation for uh, for us, you know. So I think even personally, as we go through this conversation, we are dealing with our own trauma sure. too. It's been wonderful. Yes. Uh, um, any message for parents on a practical note? Yeah, I... I, I will say that uh, a note uh, both on theoretical and uh, practical so that it is important to, you know, be a parent and it is important also to be a Hindu parent because uh, being a Hindu parent uh, means also something very unique, very special to yourself, like, you know, no other gen uh, with the generic term of parenting, you know, cannot uh, cover most of the, uh, you know, uh, parenting right now is coming from a theoretical foundation of Western perspective, which sees parenting as very different. But our ancestors developed a sense of parenting long back, and it is something which is very beautiful. As a clinical psychologist, uh, you know, from Harvard, I mean, I, so, and uh, I have studied parenting across many cultures, many and I find that the theoretical concepts of Hindu parenting are so beautiful, so sublime, so unique that there is, you know, I mean, nothing like it. And uh, it is important that uh, we, you know, while other Abrahamic faiths, they developed a concept of Christian parenting, uh, Islamic parenting. We had a concept of Hindu parenting, uh, you know, thousands of years back. It got erased, it got, you know, suppressed, and it is important that we retrieve it right now and we teach it. It's the most sublime thing that I think that uh, has existed in the history of mankind. So I think then we will call you back for a lesson sure. on Hindu parenting, you know, what are Hindu no. parenting uh, norms and what is sure. sublime about Hindu parenting. I think we'll do sure. that in a, in a future podcast. Yeah. I mean, I, I just wanted to ask you about your book, The Infidel Next Door. So yeah. I understand that all these points have been mentioned in the book. Yes. The work Many of, of fiction. 
Sure. It's the it's the work of fiction, but it has a like most fiction, I mean, many fiction, it has the grain of truth in this. It is about uh, the, you know, Hindu child's uh, search for his identity, for his roots, and how does he go, you know, for that. So it's a book that I wrote after working uh, extensively with the Kashmiri Hindu population and what, you know, seeing that how we try to retrieve our civilization, our heritage. So that's the what the book is based upon. So all those who are interested may read that and may find many of these principles that I've talked about written in that. That's what many of the parents have told me that after reading it, they have given it to their children and their children have found it deeply healing. So this is available on all uh, platforms, yeah. right? It's on yeah, Amazon. It's, it, it's a, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So we will give, uh, we will give links to uh, the, the, to, to the platforms where your book is available. We request yeah. all our listeners to please uh, read this book, even if it's a work of fiction. Obviously, all fiction always has a grain of truth in them. And uh, sure. we, we thank you profusely, Dr. Uh, Mitra, for spending all this time with us and explaining so beautifully so many things. And uh, I'm sure our listeners will absolutely take away many many points from this discussion that we've had and uh, yeah. we look forward to having you back on the podcast another time uh, we request all our listeners to please subscribe to us on our uh, platform hinduparenting.substack.com and also do follow us on all social media uh, we go by the name hindu parenting everywhere uh, all all popular social media channels and please do follow dr rajat mitra too we will provide all his uh, social media co coordinates in our uh, uh, post. So thank you and namaste. Namaste.